0: So Father, here we are, gathered together, your people, your church, and so we pray right now that you would move by your spirit, take your word, take your word, the word that is perfect, the word that never returns empty or void, the word that we so desperately need in our weakness and our frailty, take your word, press it down upon our hearts, teach us, show us. Each one of us, God, you see where each one of us is at. Show us what we need to see today. Renew us, encourage us, help us, strengthen us. Bring about repentance. Bring about faith. Bring about life change. Bring about renewed hearts. Lead us now. We trust that you will. We believe that you will. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Morning, Hope. Such a privilege to be here with you today, and if you've got your Bibles there, please go ahead and open them up to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, and we'll be starting in verse 7 today. Romans chapter 7, verse 7. Now I'm going to guess, just kind of have a look across the room, that most of us this morning looked in the mirror before we came to church. Is that true? Hands up if you looked in the mirror today before you got here. Okay, most of us looked in the mirror. That's good. That's good. Why do we do that? Here's why. Because we wanted to see what we look like, right? So I had to look in the mirror this morning. I had to make sure my hair was in place, right? Everything was good. And men, maybe you had to make sure that your beard wasn't sideways and all crazy. You had to look in the mirror. Nothing wrong with that. But here's a question. We looked in the mirror, but are we equally concerned this morning about how we look on the inside as how we look on the outside? Are we equally concerned this morning about the condition of our hearts as we are the condition of our appearance? Because isn't it true that sometimes things can look okay on the outside when they're not okay on the inside? Isn't that true? That is just true. So before we get started today, let's begin by asking ourselves a tough question. Here it is. If I'm honest, am I more concerned about the outside of me or the inside of me? If I'm honest, if I'm brutally honest right now, am I more concerned about the condition of my appearance or the condition of my heart? Which one? We can think of it this way. Am I only looking into the mirror that shows me the reflection of the outside? Or am I also looking into the spiritual mirror that shows me the reflection of the inside? Because this morning in Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul is going to share with us about a time in his life when he looked into the spiritual mirror that showed him his heart. And that spiritual mirror is the law of God. And as Paul looked into that mirror and he saw what was actually going on inside of him, inside of his heart, he was devastated. Because for the very first time, Paul truly saw and experienced and he knew this bottomless pit of evil inside of him that's called sin. And this is something that you and I need to see and experience and know as well. Because as painful as it is, as difficult as it is to see the ugliness of sin within us, it's far better that we actually know what's on the inside than don't know. It's far better for us to actually see what's on the inside of us than not to see it. And here's why. Because it's only when we can actually see the sin within us that we will run to the Lord to save us from it. It's only when we can actually see it that we will run to the Lord to save us from it. And To help us to see, help us to see what's happening inside of us. Here's what God does. He holds up his word as a spiritual mirror that exposes and confronts the sin within us so that we can see it. Because again, when we see it, That's when, that's when, when we see it, that's when we run to the Lord to save us from it. So ask yourself, do I really want to see the sin within me? Like, really? Am I willing to go there this morning? Do I really want to see what's going on in my heart? Because if we do, God is able to show us that this morning so that we might run to Him for rescue. And that leads us right into point number one, which is this up on the screen. When sin is confronted by the law, sin fills me with evil desires. When sin is confronted by the law, sin fills me with evil desires. So we're just going to jump right into Romans chapter 7. And the main point that Paul has made so far in Romans chapter 7 is that those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ have been released from the law. Meaning that Christians are no longer under the Old Testament law. Christians are no longer condemned by the Old Testament law. And here's why. Because Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law. He has fulfilled the law. This is the gospel. Let's just take a moment right now to remember the gospel, that Jesus has fulfilled the law. This is why he came. Matthew chapter 5 up on the screen, Jesus said this. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus came and he fulfilled all of the prophecies made about him in the Old Testament. But he, just, he didn't only do that, he also fulfilled the law. Meaning that he perfectly fulfilled all of the requirements of the Old Testament law. And here's how that applies to us today. The law says, obey perfectly and you will live. Obey perfectly and you will live. But we can't do that. And so Jesus came into the world And he obeyed the law perfectly for you. Jesus came into the world and he perfectly obeyed the law for us. He perfectly obeyed the law for you on your behalf. And here's why. So that through faith, through faith in Jesus Christ, his perfect obedience to the law could be credited to your account so that God can see you just as though you have perfectly obeyed the law. Praise God. The law also says this. Disobey and you will die. Disobey and you will die. And this is also why Jesus came. He came to pay for every single one of our violations of the law. And, And he did so by dying in our place on the cross. So hear this. Jesus came to live the perfect life we could never live in our place. And he came to die on the cross in our place so that through faith in him, we can be declared innocent of sin and righteous in the sight of God. Therefore, if you are here today and you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are no longer under the law. You are no longer condemned by the law because Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law in every way On your behalf, praise God. But some people reading this letter, when they get to Romans chapter 7, hearing Paul talk about the law, they may be misunderstanding him. They may be thinking that Paul is saying that the law is then bad, or that the law is evil, or that the law is sinful. And so Paul, anticipating this misunderstanding, He says this in verse 7. Romans 7, verse 7. Have a look what he says. He says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. So Paul is saying, Do not misunderstand me. I'm not saying that the law is bad. I'm not saying that the law is sin. Absolutely not. The Old Testament law is from God. Cannot be sin. But... There is some kind of relationship between the law and sin. And Paul wants his readers, including us, to clearly understand what that relationship is. Look again what he says in verse 7. He says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So here's the relationship between Law and sin. Paul says, if it was not for the law, he would not have known sin. That's the relationship. That through the law, Paul came to know sin. So when Paul uses that word sin, what is he talking about? Why does he say sin, a singular, instead of sins, plural? Well, when he's, when he's using that word sin, here's what he means. Romans 6 up on the screen. He says, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. When Paul is saying that word sin, what he's talking about, he's like, there's this thing living inside of us that wants to rule over our bodies. There's this thing living inside of us that has passions. It has desires, and it wants to make us obey its passions and desires. It's called Sin. So here's ultimately what Paul is saying up on the screen. He's saying this. Sin is a bottomless pit of evil living inside of me. Sin is a bottomless pit of evil living inside of me. Sin never gets to the point where it's like, okay, that's enough evil. That's enough wickedness. That's enough wickedness. That's enough darkness. It never gets there. It just wants more and more and more, more wickedness, more evil, more darkness, go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, taking us further and further away from God. That's what sin wants. This is true of you, and this is true of me. There's a bottomless pit of evil inside every one of us called sin. So let's consider again what Paul is saying in verse 7. Look again at verse 7. He says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I've come to know this thing inside of me called sin. I have felt it. I've experienced it. I know it. And the way that Paul came to know the sin within him is through the law. So here's what he's not saying. He's not saying that the law came up to him one day and said, hey, Paul... I want to introduce you to someone. And then the law walked him over to sin and said, Paul, this is sin. I want you to introduce you. And then Paul and sin shook hands and they met through the law. He doesn't mean that. This is what he means. He continues in verse seven. He tells us exactly what he means. He says, For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. So here's what Paul is saying He's saying that he has come to know. The sin inside of him through an experience that he had with the 10th commandment, which says, you shall not covet. So here's that commandment up on the screen. The 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So do not covet here means do not strongly desire something that doesn't belong to you. Or do not lust after something that is not yours. Or do not lust after things. Don't lust after things. Paul gives us some further insight into what coveting is in Colossians chapter 3 up on the screen. Look what he says. He says, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. Here's the list. Sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and notice, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So covetousness is idolatry. Covetousness is, isn't like I kind of want that thing, but I could take it or leave it. That's not covetousness. Covetousness is I want that thing. And then somewhere along the line in our wants, we cross the line into from want into worship. I'm now worshiping that thing. I need to have that thing. So again, it's not like I could take it or leave it. It's, I need that thing. I want that thing. It's when our wants become worship. That's coveting. And so we see this command not to covet in both the Old Testament and the New Testament as well, because coveting is idolatry. Coveting is about seeking happiness and peace and security and joy and ultimately life in created things instead of in God. Coveting is about replacing God with created things. That's coveting. And as Paul was reading the Tenth Commandment, he's looking at the Tenth Commandment, he's thinking about the Tenth Commandment, do not covet. Suddenly, the commandment became like a mirror for Paul. And as he looked into the commandment, he saw his own heart. He saw his own sin. He saw his own coveting. He's like, I'm doing that. I'm doing that. He's like, I'm doing that right now. I'm lusting after that thing. He saw coveting in his own heart. Verse 7. He says, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So as Paul looked into the commandment, it became a mirror, and he saw that there was coveting taking place in his heart. Now look what happened next in verse 8. Look what he says. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. In other words, as Paul realized that there was coveting taking place in his heart, suddenly the sin within him went berserk. The sin within him, it rose up in rebellion against the commandment not to covet, and it filled Paul's heart with more coveting than he'd ever experienced before or even thought was possible. This is how Paul came to know the sin within him. It was by experiencing sin's power over him. Look again at verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Now notice that Paul says that sin seized an opportunity. That's a very interesting little phrase in the Greek. Because seized an opportunity, what it means is to build a military base from which to attack your enemy. So here's what he's saying. He's saying that sin built like an army base. He's creating an analogy here. A military base beside the commandment not to covet. And as Paul walked up to the commandment, he started to look into it, and he realized that he was coveting. Sin was already waiting, and it attacked him and took him out and filled his heart with more covetousness than he could ever possibly imagine. Here's what it looked like up on the screen. So here we have Paul, and he, and he walks up to the commandment, and it acts like a mirror. He looks into the commandment, and he's like, I'm doing that. I'm coveting even right now. And as soon as that happened, sin went berserk. The alarm system on sin went off, and it attacked him, and it filled his heart with more covetousness than he could ever possibly imagine ever happening. This is what he's describing. Because this is what sin does. It pushes back against the word of God. It rebels against the word of God. I mean, do you ever wonder why you have all these desires in your heart that are the complete opposite of what God wants? Do you ever wonder why? Here's why. Sin. That's why. When God says don't do that, Sin says, do it. When God says, do this, sin says, don't do that. This is what sin does. It seeks to fill our hearts with desires that are the opposite of what God wants. And Because Paul has experienced this, he can say, I know the sin within me. I know it. I've experienced it. I know how strong it is. He's like, I know what it's like when sin fills your whole heart with covetousness. I know what it's like when you desire things so much you feel like your heart's going to burst if you can't have them. He says, I know the sin within me. I know it. Now it's important to note here that many commentators believe that Paul had this experience during the time of his life when he was a Pharisee. So as a Pharisee, Paul would have thought about the law primarily in terms of outward behavior. So a Pharisee might come across the Ten Commandments kind of like this up on the screen. So a Pharisee would would approach the Ten Commandments, and maybe uh, he's going to do a bit of self-examining. So up to the Ten Commandments, and and it's okay, let's see how I'm doing. Uh, Number one, you shall have no gods before me. I only worship at the temple. I'm good. Check. Number two, You shall not make for yourself a carved image. I've never done that. Check. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. I don't even say the name of God. Check. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? I am all about the Sabbath. Check. Honor your father and mother. Yeah, I do that. Check. You shall not murder. Never murder anyone. Check. You shall not commit adultery. Haven't done that. Check. You shall not steal. I haven't done that for a really long time. I'm good. Check. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. I haven't even been to court lately. Check. You shall not covet. Paul came up against this one. It's all about the desires of the heart. It became a mirror. He looked into the mirror. He saw that he was doing it in that moment. And it might even have been right there that he realized that because he was breaking the 10th commandment, he was also breaking the first one and the second one. He had another God. He had been worshiping an idol. So God's law is not simply about our outward behavior. It's also about the heart. It's about the heart. This is why Jesus said this to the Pharisees up on the screen. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Question. When you consider sin in your life, are you focused mainly on your outward behavior or the desires of your heart? This is a really important question right now. when you consider sin in your life, the whole issue of sin, are you focused primarily on your outward behavior? Or are you focused on the desires of your heart? Because we can think of it this way up on the screen. When Paul looked at his behavior, he'd be like, I'm killing it. Look at my behavior. I look good. But now he's like, but my whole heart is filled with idolatry. The Pharisees, they would have looked at their outward behavior and said, man, like, we're doing so well. We are righteous. But Jesus is like, your hearts are filled with wickedness. And it can be the same for us. We can look at our outward behavior and be like, I'm doing pretty well. I'm, I'm killing it. Meanwhile, our hearts can be filled with idolatry. So ask yourself, if I'm being brutally honest with myself, is there idolatry happening in my heart? Is there idolatry happening in my heart? Over the last two weeks, the Lord has been exposing idolatry happening in my heart. It's not a new topic, it's not a new area, but he's showing me with with greater detail, greater depth The idolatry that's taking place in my heart. I've I've been repenting. I'm still repenting over the idolatry in my heart. How about you? Are there things that you want too much? How about this up on the screen? Respect. I want the respect of my spouse. I want the respect of my kids. I want the respect of my boss. I want the respect of my coworkers. Or the approval of man. I just want to be liked. I just want people to think well of me. I want people to tell me over and over and over again I'm okay. I want the pat on the back. And it's not so much the question of whether or not we have those desires, the question is do I desire those things too much? How do I know? Here's the test. If I'm wanting respect or the praise or approval of man and I can't have it, do I get upset? Do I get angry? It's a sure sign that I want that way too much. How about this up on the screen? Pleasure. Pleasure. I just want to have streams of pleasure in my life. I want to surround myself with things that are going to bring me so much pleasure. I want easy life. I don't want things to be difficult. I want no waves. I just want things to be easy all the time. I want to be comfortable. I don't want to be uncomfortable. I just want want my comfort. And again, the question isn't whether or not I have those desires. The question is, do I desire those things too much? Here's the test. If I can't have the pleasure or the easy life or the comfort that I want, do I get upset? Do I get angry? It's a sure sign that I want that way too much. Or, how about this up on the screen control. I want to control my life. I want to control the circumstances in my life. I want to control my kids. I want to control my spouse. I want to control my coworkers and my boss. I want to control. I want obedience. I want other people to do what I say. I want my kids to do what I say. I want other people to change. I want my spouse to change. I want my boss to change. I want my kids to change. I want people to change. And the question isn't whether or not we have those desires. The question is do I desire those things too much? Here's the test if I can't have control, if I don't get obedience, if other people don't change, do I get upset? Do I get angry? It's a sure sign that I want that way too much. Lastly, up on the screen, how about this? Security. I want to be secure. I just want to fill my life with things that are going to make me feel secure. I want to be safe. I want there to be no risk to me whatsoever in my life. And again, the question isn't, do I have those desires? The question is, do I desire it too much? Here's the test if I can't have the security that I long for, if I can't have the safety that I want, do I get upset? Do I get angry? Where do you see idolatry in your heart? What do you want too much? Where can you see sin influencing your desires? Can you say with the Apostle Paul, I have come to know the sin within me. Can you say with the Apostle Paul, I know what it's like to have a heart filled with covetousness. I know what it's like to have a heart filled with idolatry. Can you say that? Do you know the sin within you? Because it's only when we know the sin within us that we will run to the Lord to rescue us and save us from it. So if you are seeing idolatry in your heart right now, Let's not rush past this moment. Let's take a moment, each one of us, where we're at right now, to run to the Lord in prayer. If you're seeing idolatry in your heart right now, if you're like, if I'm honest, I do want that thing way too much, if you're seeing that in your heart right now, let's take a moment now just to run to the Lord right where you are in silent prayer, in confession, and repentance. Let's go ahead and do that now. Let's just take 20 or 30 seconds to do that now. Give us, Lord. Amen. Well, let's jump into our second and our final point. Here it is up on the screen. When sin is confronted by the law, sin kills me through what is good. When sin is confronted by the law, sin kills me through what is good. Paul, he continues now to share his story with us. Look now at verse 9. Romans 7, verse 9. Look what he says. He says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So typical Paul for, uh, fashion, that sounds very complicated. Let's break it down. So first, Paul says that once he was alive. He says, once I was alive. Once he was alive, apart from the law. So here's what he means. He means that before that day, when he saw the covetousness within him, in the mirror, and before that day when sin attacked him and filled his heart with covetousness, before all that happened, he's saying, life is pretty good. He's saying, in a sense, he's like, I felt alive before all that happened. I felt good. I felt at peace. I felt pretty confident in myself. I felt secure. I thought I was doing well. Paul thought he was righteous because of his behavior. So in that sense, he felt alive. But look what happened next in verse 9. He says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. So Paul says, I felt alive. I felt good. I thought I was doing well. I thought I was righteous. But then on that day... As I looked at that commandment, do not covet, and I realized that I was coveting, in that moment, sin came alive. Sin came alive, meaning that up until that point, the sin within Paul, it was there, but it was relatively and comparatively dormant. It was like the sin within him for his life was kind of operating at like a two out of ten. It was there, but it wasn't particularly active. But then on that day, on that day when he looked into the commandment, do not covet, and realized he was coveting, sin came alive. The sleeping dragon inside of him woke up. It rose up and breathed the fire of coveting into his heart. So he was now on fire with out-of-control desires. In other words, when the law of God confronted the sin within Paul, The sin within him went berserk. The the two out of 10 activity of sin became 10 out of 10. And look how he describes what this felt like. Look at the end of verse 9. Look what he says. He says, But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So Paul doesn't mean that he died physically, obviously, because he wrote this letter. He also doesn't mean that he died spiritually, because this took place before his conversion. So when he says that he died, when sin came alive and he died, he means that when sin filled his heart with covetousness, he felt the opposite of alive. He used to feel alive. He felt secure. He felt strong. Now he felt insecure. Now he felt weak and afraid and broken and undone, unglued, powerless, ruined, crushed, destroyed, totally taken out by sin. Paul had been a self-righteous Pharisee. He thought God was pleased with him because of his good behavior, but now he saw his heart. Now he saw the sin within him. Now he saw himself as a sinner. And any thought of being righteous before God because of his behavior just shattered into a million pieces on the ground in front of his face. And this experience was like a death for Paul, it was a kind of death. It was a total identity crisis because, in a moment, Paul went from thinking he was righteous to seeing that he was just as much a sinner as anybody else. Question Have you experienced a death like that? Do you know what it's like to think that you're doing pretty well and then all of a sudden to discover that you're just as much a sinner? as anybody else. Maybe your story is similar to Paul's experience. Maybe there was a time in your life when you thought you were a really good person and you looked at your behavior and you kind of compared yourself to other people and you're like, I'm killing it. I'm a really good person. But then there was that day there was that day when you came to know the sin within you. There was that day when you, when you came to know there was evil inside of you. There was a day when you saw that you were a sinner and you were separated from God because of your sin. And it was like a death to you because you saw that you weren't righteous before God. But then because you saw your sin, you ran to Jesus and he saved you. Is that your story? Do you know what it's like to experience a kind of death like that? Because it's only when we can see the sin inside of us that we will run to the Lord to save us from it. Look what Paul says next in verse 10. He says, look what he says. He says, The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. So the commandment, do not covet, that commandment gives life. It's it's life-giving. It gives you life if you can follow it. Do not covet. Do not worship idols. Worship God perfectly and you will live. But this commandment, that promised life, it became the very place where sin ambushed Paul and took him out so that he experienced a kind of death. But here's a really important question. Why is it that sin's attack on Paul was so totally effective? What was the secret weapon that sin used against Paul that he seemingly had no defense for? Well, he tells us in verse 11. Look at verse 11. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. Now notice that sin attacked Paul with a very specific tactic. Sin attacked Paul with a very specific secret weapon. Do you see it there? Because it's the exact same tactic, and it's the exact same secret weapon that sin attacks us with today. Look again at what he says in verse 11. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. There it is, right there. That's the secret weapon of sin. It's deception. Deception. By using deception, sin succeeded in filling Paul's heart with covetousness. So we need to grab hold of this truth today. We need to know this. Deception is the tactic and the secret weapon of sin. Deception is the tactic and the secret weapon of sin. Hebrews chapter 3 up on the screen. The author says, But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The secret weapon of sin is deceitfulness. This is sin's power. It's, It's found in deceit. And what is sin trying to do? Harden the heart. Harden the heart so that we become less and less interested in the word of God. Less and less interested in prayer. Less and less interested in gathering together for fellowship. Less and less interested in gathering together for church. Less and less interested in the things of God, drifting further and further and further and further away from God into more and more and more sin. This is what sin is seeking to do. So how exactly does sin use the secret weapon of deception? Here's how. Ready? Through promises. It's through promises. Sin promises us that what we're looking for can be found out there. Sin promises us that happiness and security and lasting pleasure and peace... And comfort and ultimately life can be found out there in created things. Just like Satan came along Adam and Eve and pointed them to the fruit and said, what you need is found there. Likewise, sin points to created things and promises us that what we ultimately need can be found there. Hear this. Deception is the secret weapon of sin. We could think of it like this upon the screen. Paul came to the law. He read the 10th commandment do not covet. He looked in the mirror. He saw covetousness in his own heart. The alarm started going off on the fortress of sin and it attacked him and it took him out. It filled his heart with covetousness. But what was the secret weapon? How did it work? Here's how deception. Deception. Sin shot arrows of deception at the heart of Paul. Deception-like. Paul, here's where pleasure is found. Paul, here's where peace is found. Paul, here's where life is found. Paul, here's what you need. It's found over here. And he believed it. And his heart was suddenly filled with covetousness and idolatry to the extent that he could not imagine. And this is what sin does to us as well. So how do we fight back against this? There's only one way. There's only one way. Here it is. With the truth, right? We fight back against lies with the truth. And we get ready to fight against sin by rehearsing the truth over and over and over and over again. We prepare ourselves for sin's attack of deception by rehearsing what is true. So here are three truths for us to rehearse that will help prepare us to fight against the deception of sin. Here's the first one up on the screen. God is enough for me. God is enough for me. We need to repeat this to ourselves over and over again all day long. God is enough for me. God is enough for me. God is enough for me. He's enough. He's enough. He's enough. enough. Where does it say that in the Bible? Everywhere? Here's one place. Psalm 73. The psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The psalmist says, who have I in heaven but you? In other words, for all of eternity, you are all that I need. Hear that. The psalmist says, for all of eternity, you are everything that I'll need forever. Forever forever. Therefore, because that's true, you are all I need today. He says, he says, uh, there's nothing on earth I desire besides you because you are all that I need forever in eternity. Because that's true, it's also true that you are therefore all that I need today. And consider this as well. If God is enough for God, and he is, God does not need anything. If God is enough for God, then God is infinitely more than enough for us. He is enough. He is enough. He is enough. We need to rehearse that many, many times a day. We also need to rehearse this truth up on the screen. I am dead to sin. I am dead to sin. God is enough. I am dead to sin. Romans 6, Paul says, so you also must, you must, this is a non-negotiable, You must consider yourselves. You have to think about yourself this way. You have to. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You are dead to sin. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the old you that was enslaved to sin is dead. That person is gone, buried, finished, never coming back. The slave of sin is gone forever. Now you are a new creation. Now you are united to Jesus Christ. Now you can say no to sin and yes to Jesus. Amen? I am dead to sin. God is enough for me. I am dead to sin. I don't have to sin. I don't have to obey sin. When sin shoots those arrows of deception at me, I don't have to listen. God is enough for me. I am dead to sin. And then this, we need to rehearse this. We need to know what sin's up to. Sin wants to take me out. Sin wants to take me out. Again, Hebrews 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The power of sin is in deceitfulness. What is sin trying to do? Harden the heart. Why? So that we will fall away from God. So we'll drift further away, further away, further away, more into sin, more into sin, more into sin, more into sin. This is what sin is seeking to do. It's seeking to take us out, every single one of us. So here is Paul's whole point. Our problem is not God's law. Our problem is not God's commands. Our problem is not God's word. Our problem is sin and its deception. That's our problem. Look what he says next in verse 12. Verse 12. He says, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. God's command, do not covet, is holy. God's command, do not covet, is God's perfect will for us. The commandment is not the problem. It's sin that's the problem. This is Paul's whole point. And he concludes now in verse 13 with this question. He's he's asking, why did all of this happen? Why did all of this happen to me? Why did God allow the sin within Paul to come alive and deceive him and fill him with covetousness so that he experienced a kind of death? Why did God let this happen to Paul? Well, he tells us why in verse 13. Look what he says. We'll finish here. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. Look what he says next. In order that, here's the reason why. In order that, sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment, might become sinful beyond measure. So why did God allow this? Here's why. So that the sin within Paul, the bottomless pit of evil inside of him, might be exposed and confronted and then seen by Paul for what it truly is. Because as painful as it is, as difficult as it is to see the ugliness of sin within us, it's far better to know what's inside than not to know. It's far better to see what's inside than not to see it because it's only when we can see the sin within us that we will run to the Lord to save us. And maybe you're here today and you came in and you were thinking you were a pretty good person but now you are seeing sin within you. You're seeing that sin has separated you from God, that you aren't okay, that you aren't righteous. What do you do? Here's what you do. You've got to run to Jesus. He's the Savior of the world. He came to die on the cross to make payment for your sin so you could be forgiven and reconciled to God. If you would go to him, confess your sin, and receive forgiveness, embrace him as your Lord and your Savior, you can do that today. You can be saved in Jesus Christ and granted eternal life. But maybe you are here and you know Jesus Christ. But you're seeing your sin a little bit more clearly today. And you're like, I hate my sin. I hate it. I hate sin. I want to fight it. Maybe you really, really want to fight it. If that's you, here's a battle plan up on the screen. Step one, remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. Remember this, that all of your sin for your whole life has already been forgiven at the cross. Receive that today. All of your sin for your whole life has already been forgiven at the cross. Not only that, but Jesus' perfect record of obedience has been credited to your account so that God sees you as perfect in Jesus Christ. That's, uh, that's our start point. We can't even face our sin until we first receive that. Remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. Our sin's too big to face if we don't remember the gospel. Second, run to the Lord. Run to the Lord. Run to him. Confess. Ask him for help. Third R, rehearse the truth. God is enough. God is enough for me. I'm dead to sin. I'm dead to sin. Sin wants nothing more than just to take me out. Remember the gospel, run to the Lord, rehearse the truth. That's our battle plan, to fight back against the bottomless pit of evil inside of us called sin. Help us, Lord. Amen? Help us, Lord. Let's pray. Let's pray. So Father, we thank you so much that you've given us this amazing gift of your word this tangible gift that we can actually hold in our hands that acts like a mirror, that we can, we can see who we are as we look into it. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Because then we can see what's on the inside and we can run to you to rescue us from it. So God, I pray right now, if there are, if there are those watching online right now, those here right now in this room, that do not know you, that have not received eternal life in Jesus Christ, I pray that you would help them to see, to reach out, and to be, behold how, how amazing you are, your, the greatness of your love, the greatness of your grace, the greatness of your mercy, the greatness of your forgiveness, and that they would embrace you by faith and be saved. Please, would you do that? And for those of us today who have seen sin a little bit more clearly in our hearts and in our lives, God, would you help us to walk in repentance? Would you help us to to fight back by remembering the gospel, by running to you, by rehearsing the truth? Lead us, even this week, would we see increasing victory and increasing worship in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.